Welcome to Target Cancer Podcast. The reason I'm really excited to have you on this episode is because you're still considering, you know, doing HEMOC, like, and that wasn't really your, your route initially, and you had some just like myself, which is what brought me into cancer, a couple of experiences in residency that really kind of opened your eyes. You have this big gig lined up, uh, you know, in Boston, and I'm super excited for you, a Harvard-affiliated uh, institution, which I think is just such a good fit for, for what you do. Two of the cases we talked about had to pertain with central nervous tumors or head tumors. And this is a really confusing topic because a lot of people group them all together, but the truth is they're totally different and crazy. You had a pediatric case that was a uh, neuroblastoma. So people that don't know, neuroblastomas are tumors that originate from like the original cells of the brain. So it's something that's like an embryo and then they get some mutations and that's why you see it really early on usually in pediatrics versus things that are gliomas. And those are like the adult cells. Gliomas mean like it's not dividing anymore, right? So when kids like have trauma to the central nervous system or brain stuff, they recover because they're still kind of growing them to five years old. Whereas when you're older, obviously that's, you know, really bad news, hard to recover from a stroke, et cetera. And that's the glioma category. So tell me how old, let's start with the uh, pediatric case, the neuroblastoma, how old were they and what really moved you about it? Yeah, so they were actually, I would say a little more rare or maybe on that high risk category, but they were about eight years old. So a little older than, you know, oh. sometimes we could see neuroblastoma and that could be, you know, worse off prognosis most generally. And But I would say what generally, what really moved me, literally the cutest kid in the world, right? And so I was starting my pediatric oncology rotation because I'm crazy interested in hematology oncology and I was still, I was in fourth year of medical school. And so when I meet this child, uh, you know, bald, going through chemo, literally, you know, something that I couldn't imagine at the age I am, let alone being eight years old. And I go up to this kid, you know, expecting a kid to be withdrawn, like depressed, upset. Yeah. And I go and introduce myself to this adorable eight-year-old and the kiddo said, well, Dr. Tommy, I bet you can't dance like me. Like right after I introduced myself. Get out of here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was, it was insane. Like literally infusion going in to this kiddo's arm and just like on top of the world. You know, like I'm new to this clinic, don't know everybody, but this kiddo is telling me to dance in front of all these nurses, all these other doctors that I obviously want to impress being a fourth year medical student. And uh, now I'm, I don't even know how to dance, let alone. But she starts just like breaking it out and dancing along. And then she looks at me, all right, Dr. Martin, it's your turn. Or doc, she called me Dr. Tommy. All right, Dr. Tommy, it's your turn. And so obviously, no way. yeah, I love that for sure. That you know that little kiddo taught me more about life than I think that I ever could learn from a textbook or from medicine or through medical school or anything. And my first couple of days there, I was so high strong and you know wanting to make a good impression, being very professional and doing hopefully you know doing all these things right. And then this uh, you know little eight year old uh, kid just humbles me and brings me to dancing in front of a bunch of people that I didn't know and I've never even danced before and you know worried yeah. about whether it was going to be professional or not but she was like look the hardest thing that probably anybody could ever go through and I, all I see is sunshine and rainbows and I'm going to dance like nothing in the world's happening and so you know I had nothing to compare to that and so I had to dance with her <laughs> yeah and so that you know that inspired you to consider hematology oncology which I'll be honest, I respect that a lot because as much as I said everything I just said about making them the best version of themselves, uh, my ward in uh, residency was on the hem the hemonc floor was next to the pediatric floor. So we would see patients getting chemo, same thing, like, you know, hair loss and everything. And I can, I, I can tell you, and I say this, you know, humbly, like, 
not humbly, but 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 honestly, or earnestly, is that I, I I couldn't even still like it hurt me so much to be able to see that, and that I think that's a sense of weakness because really I think it's a ethical and you know just a thing to come and and be able to support people's for challenges in their life for people that don't know childhood cancers you know pediatrics about 85 percent get cured like at least um with with their cancers which is you know vastly different from adults and there's a couple of theories for this or observations one you know the organs and everything are very resilient so you have to hit a tumor hard with cancer if you're trying to cure it but at the same time, your body has to be able to handle it. And the, the organs of, you know, pediatric populations, they haven't either smoked or aged or gotten coronary artery disease and all this stuff. They're very hardy. So um, fortunately, the cure rate is very high. And then secondly, with neuroblastoma specifically, you know, these things behave all crazy, right? Like you can have one that, you know, literally self-resorbs by itself, or you have one that all of a sudden accelerates, or you have one that turns, you know, unfortunately into an aggressive cancer. On top of that, even if you have like the same kind of cancer, but somebody that's under 18 months old, even if it's spread, which has a really high mortality in my world in adults, it can actually be cured and is likely gonna be cured with intense chemo. But even after 18 months, statistics drop off quite a bit. And I say all that, just hoping people can appreciate that's the challenges of cancer. It's not even pegging the cancer. It's not even pegging the properties of the cancer. Then you're talking about even the age and, and all of these things. And we think part of it is because of how these cells still differentiate at the certain age you are it's meant to grow. So maybe it can overcome versus when they get rigid. And then when things get rigid, you're talking about glial cells. And all of a sudden you're talking about glioblastoma and all those you know glial tumors in adults. And those are very difficult to treat, especially glioblastoma. And I hear you know you had an experience personally with that as well. Can you tell us about that one? Uh, yeah, I definitely can. I was a resident at this time, and so in residency, uh, I did a hematology oncology rotation again because I'm very interested in it. And I walked into this patient room. I already knew the diagnosis and everything, and the prognosis was very poor. And I walked in and introduced myself to this man, and he's an elderly man. And I say, "Hey, I'm Dr. Tommy Martin. Very nice to meet you. I go by Tommy." And he's like, "You go by Tommy? Like you should go by Dr. Martin." Okay, yeah, okay, yeah, I can go by Dr. Martin. He's like, yeah, you, you don't need to go by Tommy. Like, that's a kid's name. I'm like, okay, you know, that's completely fine. Um, and I was like, well, what do you like to go by? And he's like, um, I'm just going to use a name, but he's like, I go by uh, Bob, but my friends call me Bobby, so you can call me Bob. And I'm like, okay, you can Bob, Bob. Only his friends call him Bob. don't Bobby. call me what my friends call him. <laughs> yeah, essentially is what, oh, you know, wow. is what this uh, patient was saying. So, you know, I do my exam, talk with him, uh, talk with his wife a little bit for, I don't know, probably 30 minutes or so. And then as I walk out of the room, I shake his hand and I'm like, Bobby, I'll see you tomorrow. And so at that time, he just like died laughing, you know, because like he made it a point to be a little stern, to be a little rigid. Right. And then right before I was leaving the room, I called him by what only his friends are allowed to call him by. You know, and so oh, that. after that day, we became best friends. I would spend lots of time in his room every single day with him and his wife, really get to know him and, you know, just like share experiences with him. Um, and the, <laughs> sorry. Um, oh, no. Trust me, I understand. And like I said, we became really, really good friends to where um, when he went home on hospice, they invited me into their home. Um, and I got, to, I got to spend time with him uh, before his passing. And, uh, you know, it's one of the best experiences I've had in residency. And, uh, you know, yeah, like I'm tearing up, but the uh, suffering that I've experienced is nothing that he went through. And he was able to battle it and go through it as an incredible husband, um, as an incredible dad and an incredible friend to me and opened up to me and shared with me some of the most intimate uh, parts of his life and trusted me enough with that. And it's an honor to call him, you know, my friend. Yeah, that's... Ugh, you got me tearing up. You know, I, 
I was always very scientific and reasonable through most of my life about everything and rational, but I will say I have believed more in celestial orchestration, if you want to put it in that way, more since becoming an oncologist than ever before. And it's for things like this. Like, I, you know, he served a purpose and role for you, but I have no doubt, like, you served one for him at a very stressful time. And you were this kind of bridge of medicine, patriarchal, you should not be Tommy, you should Dr. Martin, like, what you need, you know, classically from an oncologist or physician to also being a bridge, like you're on the Venn diagram, you're in the middle, to also warm and kind and whatever. And that's, I think, the most, I think personally, and I know people disagree, but I think sometimes, especially with the end-of-life diagnosis as aggressive as GBM, I think that's what people need the most. They need friends, they need like a doctor, but if you can have someone that's kind of both, you know, through a difficult time, it's extraordinary. Yeah, I was just going to say one more thing on that that I want all the listeners to know. Um, I think it's one of the most important things I've learned throughout my career in medicine so far, and that is oftentimes the most important thing we could do for the patient has nothing to do with medicine. Um, It could be a holding of a hand or cooking of their favorite meal or bringing them a iPad so they could Skype someone that they haven't seen in years before they pass. And so for all the listeners out there, like we could do so many great things with medicine. We could, you know, cure some cancers with medicine and we could, you know, save lives with medicine. But a lot of times the most meaningful, the most impactful the thing that the patient's gonna uh, remember until their last second often has nothing to do with medicine at all. And it's what we do at the bedside with the patient and with their family members. Yeah, I mean, I love that. It's not where you start and finish. It's like the journey along the way, right? And you know, I got tagged yesterday in a video by multiple people on TikTok and it was a person basically saying, like laughing, she's like, y'all get treatment, whatever, it's gotta come back, you're gonna die anyway, you have cancer, it was just very ugly. And, but then you see all the comments that were on there, like, well, one, a lot of people were hurt and upset because they were survivors, and you know this, this person was just saying like you're just gonna come back this and that. Why even go through all that? But the the, the point is, and especially when if anyone says a lighter version of stage four, if it's just palliative, you can't cure it. Why? I mean, I don't understand that question because it's like why wouldn't you want to like live if you have a decent quality of life? Like it's so when people say like well you're gonna you know pass well we all gonna pass like that's a newsflash right? Like newsflash. So are you. So why why you know like. I would never say that, but that's what that's my thinking. And and in palliative treatment now with targeted therapies, I mean, people are living years, years and years with no hair loss and like immune therapy and stuff. Sometimes it just like, you know, crazy things happen. But to your point, it is very much about that. It's like, what have you done with the circumstances? And if people are happy, and I see it every day, they're happy. It's like, we should all just be kinder with each other and try to make our lives better and happier because they're finite for all of us. You know what I mean? For sure. And we actually didn't talk about this on the call beforehand either, but my grandmother passed away of cancer, of lung cancer. Um, stage four lung cancer and I, I would be lying if I didn't say you know like well grandma why not just stop you know like why not just you know like don't go through the suffering I don't want to see you suffer and a lot of times I think that's like for my like for me like I don't want to hurt so bad watching you suffer like so why are you gonna put this put yourself through this but she wanted to see me graduate college you know she wanted to see my sister get married and so all of that suffering and hell that she was going through like all of that was worth it to see those things. So who are we to yeah. say not to let them go through it when their hope is in something that they may just want to see, that like they're willing to suffer, they're willing to go through this just right. for the reward of seeing those things. Yeah, I mean that's, I'm so glad you said that because I think my hardest challenge in practice is asking the patient or making sure the patient speaks up in front of their family members. Because a lot of times they say like why or don't do this or they say do it, do it and like whatever. And whichever side you're on, it's like, to put pressure on somebody facing their own mortality in the near future, I don't think it's selfish conscientiously. I think it's just knowing better. And hopefully anyone that listens to this can say, wow, like, 
that's a very good point. Like, if I was faced with my mortality and I had X, Y, Z, you know, I would, it's really, you know, you really want to respect that and see what somebody's goals and values are. And that's a big part of ideal oncology practice, which is being able to revisit the goals, right? That's always a kind of a metric. And yeah, I'm really just glad you shared that story. Unfortunately, and I'm sorry your, you know, grandmother went through that, but treatments now, like with lung cancer, are, thank goodness, like a lot more forgiving for the most part, right? Like with immune therapy and everything like that. And and we're doing the best we can. But at the end of the day, at that moment with whatever's offered in the world, like don't push somebody on like, say like, oh, you should do the best that's offered in the world today to stay alive or not. Like that is just a position that only the person in that position can know. And to judge that, I think is, is very, you know, but, but I know I'm like biased or like understand that better because I see it every day, right? Tommy, we really appreciate having you. Everyone can find him at Dr. Uh, Tommy Martin, Dr. Tommy Martin. And I just want to say, you know, I think it's very apparent, especially after this talk, that you really are like an aggregate of all of your experiences, both from, you know, Penman or like uh, both from people like Bobby that you experienced, um, you know, as well as the younger child. And, and I can't imagine what other vast, crazy collection, including your grandmother. And it just shows. And I think, I don't know, I respect that a lot. I admire that a lot. And I think, you know, we can all learn more by receiving more and you know try to potentiate that and everything that we learn from people so thank you so much for being here can't wait to see what you do i uh, hope everyone follows they really need to because you're very inspirational and i appreciate you well thank you so much i appreciate you a ton as well and your friendship means the world and having me on the podcast is incredible as well so thank you for having me of course all right my friend